I am surely honored to be here today and to be behind this pulpit. And what I have to offer is a, uh, could be kind of a touchy subject. We're going to look, the title of our lesson here today is Life Without a Church. I've done something for you, and so I'm going to ask for something in return. I have cut out of my lessons things that I knew would cause some to be very upset. So what I ask in return is, is that if I say something that you disagree with, which is, which is fine, this is merely my perspective, and I have lots of errors. If you don't believe me, ask my wife. So I could be wrong, but I just ask that if you hear something that you're immediately so, that's so wrong. Don't just dismiss it. Don't dismiss me. Don't walk out. Just take the few minutes that I have up here, and I'm going to start my few minutes. <laughs> and just consider, just for a moment, if maybe there might be some truth to this. So today I'm going to look at, as we begin this lesson, a comparison of a generational church versus a non-generational church. And I think that it is important that we look at this. It's always been important in history. Depending, and it really doesn't matter how far back you want to go. You can take it all the way back to the Apostle Paul, Paul and his efforts to build churches. But in our time, in our children's time, in our, the life that we live now, the world is becoming a place where Christians just cannot get along with the world like they used to. And I'm, I'm telling you, there's churches out there that are giving it all they have. Uh, they're giving it a great effort to get along with the world. So I'm going to give the, the, world, the, the major churches a, a little kudos there. But they're becoming the world. So that's not good. That's not going to work for us, hopefully. So we're going to have, we have to find a solution, and that's what I've ch chosen to do today. I'm not taking you down a road that's probably going to get a lot of amens. And I'm telling you, if you've been up here, if you're a preacher, you know, amens are really important. It kind of motivates you. It makes, it makes you feel like, oh, at least you're on the right path. But I, I, I've committed today that I want to give you something that is pragmatic, something that you can use if you want to. Something you can use to help. It's, it's, not a, it's not a solution to everything. But this, this is a piece of the puzzle that I think we need in order as Christians, as Israelite believers, this is a part of the puzzle that we are going to survive the current situation that we're living in. So if I could build a, a comparison of what a generational church, because we're going to look at what, what, what will... A life without a church somewhat look like, at least the negative aspects of it. But before we do that, I, I have to build somewhat of a foundation of what a church is. And unfortunately, churches, the definition of churches, in, at least in our circles, has been stretched out almost, in my opinion, like that bumper sticker that says coexist. It has all the different religions. Yeah. Well, we've, I think we've come that far, even amongst the uh, Israel believers, that there really is no definition. I, as long as I will call it a church, if I will label it a church, if I want it to be a church, then you have to accept it as a church. And that's fine. I'm not going to go to war with you on that. But, but if you don't have a true generational church, you're missing out on some things. 
And so I just want to take some time here this morning to show you some of the things that we may be missing out on. But first I have to build this foundation of what a generational church is. And I have three major points that I believe must be present for a generational church. But with those three points, I think there needs to be a mentality. It's really all about what we are committed to. It's about our priorities. Every one of us in here has a priority list. Some of us have sat down and worked it out. Others just let it naturally work out itself. But we have priorities. There's things that we prefer over other things. Even the food that we eat. Some of us have prioritized that. Best if you have, you know, diet restrictions. You say, well, I'm, I'm not giving it up, but I'm going to, you know, save that for a special occasion. And we've made it prioritize that, that particular food. But I want to come at it from a thinking process. And the best comparison I could come up with, which may not be a perfect one, is a business versus self-employed. And I am going to pick on home churches a little bit. I know there's a place, I know that they're a great place to start. They are not the solution in my opinion. But I do know that this is not a, all, a fit-all situation. So if, if you're in the best situation that you possibly can, I'm not coming down on you or looking down on you. But home churches are not necessarily always a church. So I'm coming at this from the perspective of a business versus a self-employed person. A self-employed person it's not really a business. They are someone who is looking to get work for themselves, and that's it. When they die, that self-employed situation dies with them. So their family will gain nothing after they're gone. A business owner, their mentality is, I'm going to build something that doesn't necessarily need me. I might have been there from the start, but once it's up and running, no matter how much I benefit it, so no matter how much my vision causes that business to grow quickly and efficiently, if I die, the business still can move on without me. Amen. Maybe not the same. Maybe it better. I don't know. But that's the mentality that we're looking at. A generational church is built to keep going. Generation after generation after generation. Absolutely. Now, my dad taught me something. He, he never had a saying, but he, 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 I have a saying, but I learned this saying from his example. Now, present here in the church right now, the Clarks have a three generations. We had my mother and father represented, myself, and then my children. So there's three generations of Clarks that have been here at the Church of Israel, and hopefully it will continue. That happened because my dad's vision was, don't find a church where you're making a living. Make a living where you find a church. Does that make sense? Now, I'm not saying that everyone needs to come here. I'm not. But I am saying that that, and that's about all I'm going to say about it, but that, let that sink in. Are you, are you, has your priorities been, this is my life, this is my home, this is my job, this is everything, and I'm going to do the best I can to find a church, which many don't. Many don't, because there's, there's a uniqueness 
in our understanding of Scripture that makes us not only incompatible with the world, but we're now somewhat incompatible with most mainstream Christian churches. So what do we do? I'll leave that up to you. So here's, here's the three the three components that I believe will make a generational church work. I think all three have to be present. You can't cut one out. And, he, and I'm, I'm willing to bet that most of us will have at least one of these three things. They won't all be the same, but one of these three things, you will think to yourself, hmm, I don't know that you really need to have that. And that's why we're struggling to have generational churches. We have to have all three. Now, none of these are going to be a surprise to you, but I, will, I would like to spend a little time working out the importance of them. The first one, people. I know that may sound, oh, well, yeah, you, duh, people. But see, this is where the, the home churches begin to really hurt. I can't tell you how many people have told me, well, well as long as there's two or three of us, we have a church. I'm going to spend a moment and look at those verses, and I, and I hope to show you that that is not what those verses are referencing. But nonetheless, that's, that's the mentality that we have. I don't need a body. Well, you're right. You can worship God without a church. But again, are you missing something? Are you missing something that a generational church has? And a generational church does not operate with just one little family. It's, it's a great place to start. Don't misunderstand me. But it's not the future. And like the business owner versus the uh, self-employed individual, when the leader of that home church dies, so does the church. And then if you look at the congregation as merely your children, don't be fooled. Most of your children are going to move on from that church environment to bigger and better things. And then your congregation dies. So it's not, it is not a future. So if I could, I would like to read, I've got a few verses here to just prove to the best of my ability that God's vision for the church was not two or three people. So if we could turn into uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we're going to be starting in verse 12. This is, we're all very familiar with this. This is Paul's reference to a body being made of many parts. So I like to read it. So, if, so just bear with me. I'm going to read through this as quickly as I can. For as the body is one, I'm starting at verse number 12 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. For the body is one, hath many members, and all the members of one body, being many, are one body. So also is Christ. For by one spirit we are all baptized into one body. This body is talking about the church. Whether ye be Jew or Gentile, whether ye be bond or free, or have uh, been all made to drink unto one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. Now, I don't have a number on it. I'm not saying 4,000. I'm not even saying 100. I don't know what that means. But I know that we're looking at something that is bigger than just a small handful. Bigger than just a little family. That are many, if the foot shall say, and then we know the rest of the story for time's sakes, we won't go on. But there at the end, it says, God set the members, every one of them, in the body as it hath pleased him. Maybe you get something different from this verse. 
But these verses tell me that God's vision given to Paul was to build something large. Larger than just a little home church. If we could turn to Ephesians chapter 5, 20, starting in verse number 22. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands, as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Now, if the church and the home are one and the same, why is there different leadership qualifications? Did you pick up on that? There's home, that's where the, the husband's in charge of, but then there's the church. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Well, if you're already married and you've got a home church, she's already subject to the husband. Why, would you need to, why does there need to be a, a, a speculation on who's subject to Christ? Who's subject to the church? If it's all in one... What I'm, I hope that you've seen is that there's a separation there. There's things that happen at home, and then there's things that happen at church. And there's leadership qualifications that are somewhat different depending on where you're at. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church. Again, seems to be some separation between home life and church life. And gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but it should be holy without blemish. A third witness. And I have many I could go to, but this is not my entire lesson. So this is my third witness here in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. We are all very familiar with these verses. And let us consider one to another to broke one unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much more as ye see the day approaching. Now this is very applicable to us right now. This is what I want to exhort us to, is that we begin to build generation or be part of generational churches so that we might have the benefits that this verse is talking about. So that's all I'm going to spend on people. But I think that we can see that God's vision for a church was many people. The next aspect is leaders. It is important that we have leaders. I was just telling a story the other day in my construction field. As a foreman, sometimes you'd get the call down from the big dog said, hey, I need you to make this job last a little longer than normal. Sometimes we get behind and they don't want to, you know, lose the contract. They just want to kind of slide through this slow time and then when it picks back up, they'll hit it hard again. So here's the principle that we use to help make that happen. If you wanted to get something done, you put someone in charge. If you wanted to make it last a while, or in essence, if you didn't want to get something done, you put two people in charge. The point is, is that there has to be someone in charge. If everybody's in charge, we're not going to accomplish anything. Decisions have to be made. And so leaders are an important part of a generational church. And so the verse that I have here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 and 7, we can see 
that there is, this is talking about ordaining bishops into the church and the criteria. We won't read that. I think most of us are familiar with it. But a bishop must be blameless, a husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, sober. Everyone understand what that means? One drink, and you're no longer in a sober mind. Uh, sober, vigilant, uh, good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy, a filthy lucre, patience. And we all know, and, and it goes on. That's a criteria for the leadership, but it's, an, but it's also evidence that there has to be the leader. We, we can't have this, this idea that, oh, well, it's, it's, it's just democracy. No, there's nothing wrong with input. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying there comes a time when you've sat down and you've discussed stuff, and you're probably never going to have two or three people get together and discuss something, and it's always going to be 100% unity. That hardly happens in a marriage let alone many people a part of many marriages. So in the end, someone has to say, okay, this is what we're going to do with it. It doesn't mean that you don't spend some time with it. I, I can tell you right now, this church here has spent decades upon decades, just the time that I've been here, working out certain areas of theology. It took a long time. But once they realized, you know, we're, all right, we're starting to spin our wheels now. We're not going anywhere. We've got all the information. We've looked at all of it. Everyone's got their opinion in. Eventually, someone's got to make the call. And that's the proper way to do it. Leaders. All right, so we have bishops as an example of leaders being part of the church. The second area we have is we have Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. It tells a story of the need for deacons. The main leaders, it was just too much work, which is also an indicator that the church was not meant to be something very small. The churches were becoming so large that they needed someone to clean up the tables, to take care of other duties. So you have the diaconate. The, the deacons were then chosen. And then, of course, they have their criteria, and we see there in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, that we see the deacons, or Stephen very famous deacon, they're, they're chosen and then brought into the, into the fold. Then in Titus chapter uh, 1, we have, here if you go to Ch Titus chapter 1, uh, beginning at verse number 4, I would like to read this. To Titus, mine own son, after the common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. For this cause left I in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city as I have appointed thee. Now I want you to see that this is not a one-man show. Okay? This is, these, or, these ordained ministers in all these different churches, they're coming from a greater organization. Does that make sense? So it's not just some guy in Ephesus going, you know what, I don't like anything else that's being taught out there. Or maybe it's not that. Maybe it's just, you know, I really like my job as a tent maker, and I want to stay right here. So I'm not going to transplant myself to any, anywhere else, because that'd be inconvenient. And mine, maybe not even get along with anybody there. I'm going to start my own church. I think this verse kind of goes against that. 
That it's, it's not about, oh, I'm just... And now again, if God's called you to start a church, please do not read into this. I know that it doesn't fit all situations. Looking at the big picture here. The big picture is not for everyone to go around and just start, start, start a church. Now I know there's kind of been a lot of talk about that at the conferences here of late in the uh, Israel movement. Let's start a church, start a church. Well, that's great. But if it takes decades to build doctrine for a church... Is that really what one person plans on doing? And more importantly, can one person, if I just said, you know what, I want to start a church. And I go out here and I, I begin to start a church. I, I can be, uh, you know, charismatic when I want to. I can be, you know, talk people into things if I really had to. Start a church. But in the end, my doctrine would be built off of me. Off of my experience, which I, I grew up here at this church, so I probably have a pretty good start. But nonetheless, it would, not, it would be an individual process that would be missing some important concepts. And that's what I want to look at today, is that it takes a multitude of counselors to build proper doctrine. And if we follow the model that God gives us in the Scripture on how a church is to be built, bishops and priests and deacons, all these different aspects of leadership, ultimately having the one major one, but operating in a multitude allows them to work out certain sticky points that most of us just argue about at the dinner table, there at the pot, and potlucks and things. They work out these sticky points with many minds. So let's go to a, an example of this. If we could, let's turn into our Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 18. Most of us are very familiar with Matthew chapter 18. This is the one where you go to if you have problems with someone. That person doing something wrong. What am I supposed to do about him? How do I get him fixed? Well, pray for him would be a great start. But some of us are a little compulsive, and our impulses don't allow us to just simply go to our knees and pray and then give it up to God. We feel like I've got to do something about it. So we see here in Matthew chapter 18... That we have this example where you go to your brother privately. If he doesn't listen, then you go and get a, a group of people from your church. And then you go to them as a little larger group. If they still don't listen, then you take it before the elders of the church. And then if they don't listen, then you treat them like an unbeliever and ask them to just kind of move on until they're willing to deal with their problem. But in that, after all that takes place, there's a, there's a few verses there that follow that many, I think, take this out of context, where two or three are gathered together, there will God be also. So let's read them, if you would. I'm in Matthew chapter 18, verse 18. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say unto you, that if two or three shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. I don't think this is talking about a congregation. It's talking about leadership. It's talking about how to make a decision in this particular series of verses, how to, to make a decision upon whether or not we're going to, how we're going to deal with this situation. So you have to have two or three minds that come together. There, there is a good thing when one person 
does not make the decision based on his soul research. Having others bring input, leaders, people that are taking this serious. Yeah, the congregation plays a role. This church is very good about having meetings. But in the end, it, has, it really has to boil down to those that God has called, and it really boils down to those who are going to take that serious. The leaders, at least should, this should be their whole world. Because they have to live a certain way. The leaders of a church can't just live anywhere. We, we just read one example of bishop. Deacons are no different. You can't just live anywhere. So you be, you, this, this church becomes your focus. Everything you do, you're thinking, hmm, how is the congregation going to view me? It's like living in a glass bubble. That's a good thing. It's not an easy thing. But it's a good thing. So these verses, what they're saying is, is that when a decision has to be made, a sticky decision, and I think theology would fit that, that we need to bring two or three leaders together to work it out. Now, are they always going to work it out perfect? No. But if someone has a desire to truly walk in God's ways, they're going to get closer than someone who doesn't. So we, let's take these, this group of people, this group of leaders that said, we've decided that this point of theology is this is how it's going to play out. Now we're sitting in the congregation and we're going, oh, they got it wrong in one point. Did you see? Well, I want to read that again. I want you to see this. It says, again, I say unto you, if two of you shall agree on earth, agree, the three or more ministers that come together and they come to an agreement on earth touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of the Father which is in heaven. Whatsoever ye shall bind or whatsoever ye shall loose will also be accepted in heaven. So in short, when our ministers do the best that they can, our leaders of the church do the best that they can to make a decision... Even if they're wrong on one point of it, God says that he's with them. Are you with me? He's with them. He says, whatever you decide, as long as you do it like I ask you to, I will support you. So if you struggle with what calendar your church uses, you're not just going against the men that decided that. You're going against God. When you struggle, what, how many times we take communion? You're going against God. When you struggle what day we're supposed to worship on? You're not just going against the men. You're going against God. Because God says that whatever you loose here on earth, it's loosed in heaven. I'm not going to hold on to it. And whatever you bind on earth, I'm going to bind here in heaven. I'm going to work on that project. Does that make sense? I hope so. This is so very important. It, it will, if nothing else, will help us to let go of our pettiness and say, you know what? All right, fine. I will trust that our leaders, as long as they're not violating Scripture, that if they get it off a little bit, they can still guide me into heaven. And then Titus chapter 1, verse 9, holding fast the faith the faithful word as it hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince 
the gainslayers. This is talking about ordaining ministers, ordain, ordaining ministers that have been taught. It's not talking about the private Bible study. These are ordained ministers that are coming out of the church, going to start other churches, because this church is too big, perhaps. It's not talking about a guy just saying, you know what, I don't like my church, I don't like anything, this, that, and thus. I'm going to start my own church, and I'm going to ordain myself as a minister. I don't think that's really what Scripture is, is driving at. All right, our next subject, and I've got to move along, is buildings. Buildings important. There are, I recognize there's been time in history where churches assembled in underground caverns, in caves, fields, maybe even barns. We've got a portion of history where they gathered in catacombs. That's the exception. That is not what God is trying to accomplish when he says, let's build a church. So there may be times when that happens. Personally, I don't believe we're living in those times. Maybe the times may happen somewhat soon, maybe in my lifetime, maybe not, but we're not right now. So that's not the kind of churches we need to be thinking about, is that we don't need a building. A building's not important. Building is important. And I think I have some verses here that can prove it. So if we go to John chapter 2, verse 13, we'll see. Well, let's just read it. John chapter 2, verse 13. And the Jews in the past... The, and the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went to Jerusalem and found the temple, those that sold oxen, sheep, doves, and the changers of money sitting. And he went, and he made, and he had made a, a scourge of small cords and drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers of money and overthrew the tables and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence. Make not my father's house a house of merchandise. That's a pretty interesting verse. I don't know if you can imagine Jesus walking in on this and then slowly walking out. And then he's sitting on a stool just out the, outside the door, you know, getting these straps of leather and tying things on the end of them, calmly getting ready to walk back in there. But what we can learn from this verse is, is that Jesus saw that building as something sacred. He saw that building, not the group of people, the building as something that was sanctified. It was set apart from other buildings, including our homes. Offer another. And I, I really want to hammer this home because I think this is the number one place where people just say, it doesn't matter. I don't need a church. I don't need to find a church that has a building because the buildings aren't important. It's just about the people. Well, the people are important. So are the leaders. So are the building. And again, may not fit every situation, but the big picture of buildings. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. These things write I unto you, hoping to come unto you these shortly. But if I tarry long, and thou mayest know how... Thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. There's a certain way that we are, he's telling Timothy here, that there's a certain way that you're supposed to behave in that building. 
different than the home. Then we have Luke chapter 2. For time's sake, I won't read that. But we have Luke chapter 2, verse, um, starting there in 46. We find Jesus was lost, and his parents are looking for him, Joseph and Mary, and they find him preaching in the temple. And Jesus says, confused, he says, Did you not know I was about my father's business? He's in the temple. He's found his father's business not in everybody's homes. He found his father's business in the temple. And then the last verse that I'm going to use, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 33. Wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, this is talking about the Lord's Supper. When you come together to eat, tarry one for another. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home. And ye come not together unto condemnation, and the rest will I set in order when I come. This is talking about taking the Lord's Supper. And if you're coming because you think, oh, the church has got better food than we did at home, I'm, gonna, I'm coming to feast. <laughs> Paul's saying, no, eat at home. That's where you get your belly full. We're coming here for a sanctified service that is significantly different. But it does indicate that there's home life and then there's church life. Now, let's talk about a, a life without a church. That was the goal here today. And I think I got enough time to do it. Sometimes we don't know what we're missing. That's, that's I guess, a fallen world attribute. That's where I'm going to put it. Tell you a story. I had this saw. It was a metal chop saw. Is everyone familiar with the metal chop saw? It's like an oversized grinder that cuts metal. And in my business, we cut bundles of metal at a time. And I had a lot of trouble with chop saws in the beginning, the, you know, go to the big box stores. Those chop saws didn't have what it took. But finally I fell upon an industrial German-made Jepson chop saw that didn't burn up on me, and I just fell in love with it. I used that saw for 12 years. During that time, I had several people recommend band saws. I had lots of uh, ads come in the mail advertising their band saws as a much improvement over chop saws, at least for my situation. I ignored them all. I could count on that chop saw. I knew what to expect from that chop saw. Went through lots of switches, lots of brushes, so I knew to expect that. I didn't want to give it up. And so I ignored everything about the band saws. The chop saw's working. Yeah, it worked. I didn't know what it may be not doing so well at. Because it was doing good enough. I was comfortable. I got used to how it operated. So much so, that when it finally broke, I wanted another one. That's how we are with our lives. We get used to the way it is. And even when others are trying to show us a better way, we resist because we're just used to how that chop saw worked. And then when it finally moves on and a door opens up, a really good door opens up for us to, to embrace something better, we go right back to our old habits. And we actually spend time and money. I spent, I spent a lot of money on parts trying to get the thing started running again. It didn't work. And I spent two weeks trying to find that saw out there somewhere, and it was discontinued. The company no longer made it. So I was forced 
to get a bandsaw. I can honestly tell you that is the number one game changer tool that I have in my shop right now. I cannot believe that I went 12 years on that loud, noise-making, dust-creating, spark, slow. I have a whole list of things that I didn't recognize then, but that chop saw was substandard. So is life without a church. Sometimes we just don't know it. Because we've gotten used to where we're at. We've gotten used to the way we are. So here are some things that you're missing out. There are some things that if you don't have a church, it may be a problem for you. First one, loneliness. That may seem pretty obvious, but it's a big important thing. I know people that had a family. The family moved away. They lost their spouse. And they died alone without a church. That's a terrible way to exit this world. But they did that because they chose, their commitment was to where they were at, not to a church. Loneliness, is, it affects many aspects of your life, including your family. But isolation is not healthy. And to expand that a little further, the second area that struck, suffers from not having a church is a marriage. Now, marriage in general, maybe not, but if you have a marriage that says, we cannot be of the world, we have to come out of the world, but yet, and man, I want you, I'm, young men especially, I want you to hear this. If your plan is to go chasing after money, which, don't misunderstand me, you have a responsibility to take care of your family. But if you go and get married and transplant your family out in the middle of nowhere and you look around and you say, there's no one here we're compatible with. I don't even want you to be friends, honey. I don't even want you to be friends with these people. And then you wonder why depression begins to creep in. Marriage begins to struggle. You can't do that. Don't, don't expect peak performance out of your vehicle if you, do, if you put it in an environment and it's not designed to operate. My truck, I hate to say this, got a Ford. <laughs> but if I take it pond jumping, it's not going to perform as it's supposed to. In fact, it does its best, especially because it's a Ford, on recently paved highway. Our marriages will do best in a church environment. Our spouses, and this probably maybe mostly among the ladies, but it creates a codependent system. Because now we have a household, and this will include children too. But I can't, I can't have a relationship outside of the household. I can't really get into any church. I can't really be part of anything. So my only friends are my spouse and my children. And I begin to get lonely. We talked about that earlier. And now I begin to depend 100% on my husband making me happy or my children and what they do making me happy or my wife making me happy, creating this codependent environment that is destined for failure. 
No one person can make you perfectly happy. They are going to fail you. And if the only thing that you have to fall back on is the person that failed you, you're doomed. Marriages need, godly marriages need churches. In fact, I'll add, I'll add this in here. I'm not, I don't like to get into the details, slow things down. But I'll add this statistic. We all know that 50% of Christian marriage, or yeah, Christian marriages have a 50% rate failure, just like the world does. I don't buy that for a second. But the word Christian has really been stretched, and that's why we're, we're getting that statistic in there. Trust me when I tell you, two saved Christians get married, they're set for life. They're set for life. But not everybody gets married to a Christian, they think they get good, and that's another story. But here's what we found. Of the Christians, those who just add going to church on a regular basis kicks them down the street to the 75% success mark. 25% more likely to survive than the ones that don't go to church. That's church. Church does something. There's something about that community. The next we have is children. Children are the key of a generational church without question. But children also benefit from the generational church. Children are more likely, you're going to like this one, parents. Children are more likely to stay in your life if they're raised in a church, one church, a consistent church, raised in a church that the parents still attend in their adult life. Not a guarantee that they will go to that church. But they were more likely to stay local and be part of your life if they're raised in a, cons- in a consistent church environment. And I would add that you're more, your chances of them being part of your church must happen if you have a church to start with. It's almost guaranteed that if you, if you depend upon a home church, that when the children grow, they will, because they're really just leaving the flock, the nest rather, they're leaving the nest, not the flock, bad word. Flo- it's good to be part of the flock. But they're leaving the nest. That's natural. And it's not their fault that the nest also happened to be the church they grew up in. Okay? They're going to leave it. They're going to leave it. The good chances, anyways. Children do well with visual examples. So if you're part of the church, you attend the church, you attend on time to the church, they're going to they're gonna be tempted, they're going to be tested, rather, not to do those things, but their success will be higher if they've seen how it does, how it works. They see that daddy's doing it, and nothing else, they know in their heart of hearts, oh, if I'm late for church, even if they're married, honey, we got to go, dad's never been late, we got to get there, I don't want dad to look down on me. These things play a role. But if you're not that person, and you're just over there with hopes and prayers that your children are going to be like you want them to be, not like you are, but like they, you want them to be, well, that's really all it is, just a hope. And it's not even a good one. Finally, well, there's, and then there's personal refining. We learn how to be civilized individuals when we're amongst people. Amen. You can see this, I, I'm ashamed to say this, but when you go on the internet and you get on these certain threads and discuss certain subjects of theology, you can tell the people 
that have some sort of congregation and those who aren't by the way they speak. They're a little more reserved. They just know how to act around people. Now, you can spot the guy that doesn't go to church. I mean, I, I don't even need them to tell me they don't like church. I can see by the way they talk. They have no fear of accountability. They have no fear of, cut, of burning bridges, cutting ties, or you hating them at all. In fact, they're very quick to throw uh, Matthew chapter 18 at you and tell you, oh, if you don't, if you don't give me an apology, we're going we're to have to go and treat you like a publican. Not realizing that is actually a church-structured thing. And then when you remind them, well, what church are we going to utilize for this? And it goes silent. You've got to have a church. And the last one is, and we're going to close on this, it opens you up for false teaching. You miss good, sound doctrine. As we spoke before, it takes a little while for a congregation. I'm not sure that a non-generational church can really work out a whole lot of theology. They, they might get one or two things worked out before that church withers and dies. But to be able to have sound biblical understanding of some of the deeper things, and more than one or two of them, takes decades upon decades. I can only remember about 30 years here in this church. I don't know how many decades before my memory began to kick in that they were still working on things. I witnessed changes in this congregation. Good one. But it took that process. So this idea that one person gets a, a, a spur in a shoe and he's like, I'm going to go start a church and then he's going to be on, on par, that's fine. If God has called you to start a church, just make sure you understand. By saying, I'm going to camp out wherever it is I'm going to camp out and I don't want to go and be part of someone else's church that's already been established, that I'm literally going to have decades upon decades upon decades It'll probably won't even happen in their lifetime to where they're able to work everything out. Well, generational church, you can pass that on. I've been building a wrought iron fence for about what, 16 years now. When I started, I had all the information. I'm a researcher. When I come on to a project, I will, you ask my wife, I will spend a week, and that's all that I'm looking at. I'm not interested in anything else that's going on in the world. All I want to know is how this thing works. So I'll have, when I started building the ornamental work that I did, I had all the information. But I didn't have any maturity in that field. And so some of my stuff was pretty basic. I thought it was the greatest thing in the world. But I can tell you now, 16 years later, I'm making a product that I didn't think I was capable of 16 years ago because I've matured. Now I'm teaching it to my son, but I'm able to pass on to him not just the information, but I'm able to pass on to him the maturity. He doesn't have to spend 16 years figuring this out. He can take my experiences and apply it immediately. So in closing, Matthew chapter uh, 7, verse 24, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them, I will liken him, liken him unto a wise man, which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not. For it was founded upon a rock. And every one that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not, 
shall be likened unto the foolish man which built his house upon, a, upon the sand. The rain descended, and the floods came, and the wind blew, and beat upon the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. This is my, my take on false doctrine. If you're standing on something that is not true, I'm black and white, I apologize for that. I don't see the gray area. I, do, I am working on that. But the reality is, gray is not white. It's just that simple. If we're not standing on truth, we're standing on sand. If you stand on sound doctrine, which I believe generational churches build, or at least they, they, they determine it, then you're standing on sand. When we're standing on doctrine that says that the Trinity is not a thing, one God, three persons, that's not a thing, you're standing on sand. When you say there is no literal fallen angel that walks in the world seeking to destroy you, and the Bible gives him a name, you're standing on sand. When you don't believe that your sin qualifies you for eternal damnation, you're standing on sand. And when you don't believe that God kept his word by giving us an inerrant word of God in the language that we speak, you're standing on sand. So my closing thoughts is, let's stand on the rock. God bless you and thank you.